The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Dr. Nicole Rankins with me. And Nicole is an OBG, OBGYN physician and certified integrative health coach. And she's also the host of the All About Birth and Pregnancy podcast, which is great. You should head over there and listen to it. And the creator of the Birth Preparation Course. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me how you got your start. What was your interest? Uh, because the life of an OB is definitely not the most smooth. <laughs> profession you could pick? Yeah. So I've been in practice for almost uh, 15 years, actually. Um, I graduated, I can't believe I graduated from medical school 18 years ago. That's um, really a long time ago. <laughs> you're like, a, like an adult doctor, like your, your degree is 18 years old. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. So uh, I initially started out doing research and thinking I was going to have a career in research and academic medicine. That was not the right sort of best fit for me. So I did that for a few years and then kind of stumbled upon being an OB hospitalist. And what I do now as OB hospitalist, which is what I've done for the past, uh, let's see, four, almost five years, I guess, maybe a little bit longer, five, six years. I uh, just work in the hospital. So 99% of what I do is help bring babies into this world. And I absolutely love it. So I do shift work actually in the hospital. So I work 24 hour shifts at a time. And uh, I do seven of those roughly a month and I deliver babies. And then, so that's like my quote unquote day job, but it's also day night job. <laughs> Wait, so you only work seven days in the month, but they're 24 mm -hmm. hour shifts. Correct. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I, I, most of the time I can, I get at least some sleep. There are times when I'm up the whole time, but most of the time I usually can There's get There's a like, nap somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. Back closet somewhere. Yeah, I mean, yes. I just have this like fascination with the life of an OB, like how you guys <laughs> handle, because there's a lot of discussion about um, how that system is not great because women don't have continuity of care. They don't know who's going to be at the birth. They, they mm -hmm. you know, it, it's hard for them. But on the other hand, it's so hard for birth providers to be on call right all the time so at least right. you get it out of the way right yeah yeah and 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 it works i mean i think it works both ways it actually has some benefits to it I, obviously for me it works i have a, a predictable schedule of flexibility i have time to spend with my family but for the birthing person it actually has been shown a hospitalist model to help decrease the cesarean birth rate because we don't have a rush you know there's no um, impetus for us to rush birth at all and there's no like five o'clock c-section because the doctor is trying to get home or anything like that Because you get so. to go home no matter what and your replacement deals with whatever comes Right. So we're, you know, we're there, we're going to do whatever we need to do for that, that period of time. So it definitely decreases the cesarean birth rate. And I think people who are attracted to hospitalist medicine, that's one of the, um, the things that you 
know that you have to do is being able to establish rapport quickly with, with patients and help put them at ease, even though yeah. I'm meeting them for the first time. Yeah, I was so. going to say that was my next question is how mm-hmm. do you make that? I, I'm not familiar with the word hospitalist. Mm-hmm. It's, what is the actual definition? Yeah, so that just means all I do is work in the hospital. And as an OB hospitalist, um, there's also like internal medicine hospitalists. So in different um, specialty. So that's just a generic term for a physician or a provider, really. It could be a physician's assistant, could be a midwife. I actually work side by side with mid- midwife hospitalists mm-hmm. who only work in the hospital. So it just means you only work in the hospital. Got it. So you don't mm-hmm. do any outside births or don't do any out, don't do any uh, outpatient. I don't see patients for prenatal care, postpartum care, for any gynecology care. Oh, okay. There's the, the niche. So, so uh-huh. you're not actually seeing them in their prenatal care. So the first nope. time they meet you is with their legs open. So, well, not quite, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the mean, first time they meet me is in the hospital. Yes. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the first time I met the one of my OBs was at the stitching level. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, it <laughs> is. Hello, sir. It nice is, to meet you. Yeah. So, it is definitely. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, well, I can I see. meet them that, only in, in the hospital. So, what are the, some of the things that um, your team tries to do to make the continuity feel safe for the woman? Well, I think the way obstetrics is being practiced in general anyway, there's not that many providers, some still do, that it's a very high chance, and especially in group practices, that you're not necess- that the doctor who you meet is going to be another member of the group, of the practice, that kind of thing. So that's fairly common these days. So we're just considered an extension of the practices who we work with at the hospital. So it works out nicely. And like I said, we're able to establish rapport quickly. I have patients not infrequently ask me, can they come see me in the office? I was going to say, you're, you're so fun already. We've been podcasting for five minutes. I'm already in love with you. Please deliver all my future babies, grandchildren. Um, so, so I can so, see that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's my, my uh, day job and day slash night job. And then on the, also I, um, I actually went back and got additional training. I did my residency training at Duke and then I went back there to become trained as a certified integrative health coach. I was, it was a way to sort of help women like, like really make changes in their health beyond just like go on a deeper level and a more holistic yeah. approach to helping. Um, and it's probably like more preventative and maintenance correct. and, and yeah. self-care yeah. and not like, oh no, acute care. Right. Yeah. So, and, but coaching, coaching has its own, it's certainly valuable, but it has its challenges and kind of thinking of a way for me to marry the things that I learned with this holistic approach to health coaching with my uh, job of being an OB, I ended up starting this podcast and creating this online childbirth education class. So that is where I am now. So you are totally on the education. Uh, you love education. You think education is the best. So Very tell me about up. how education, mm-hmm. prenatal education can help um, help with the birth experience. Yeah. So the hospital birth system, and I focus on hospital birth. I don't have anything against birth center birth or um, home birth. It's appropriate appropriate for many women and, you know, appropriate candidates for it. It's just, I don't know that. So what I know is, is yeah. birth in the hospital and it's what um, most women actually do. So I will give that caveat that yep, I focus I love it. Yeah, specifically on hospital birth and hospital birth in this country. Uh, and I focus again on hospital birth in the U S cause that's what I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's founded on uh, a system that's based with 
you know, misogyny, taking away control from women and the decisions, them being able to make decisions about what happens in their bodies and uh, racism. And that, you know, we've gotten better. You know, it kind of started really bad where we used to sort of knock women out and twilight sleep, although the, the origins of that are kind of interesting, where women actually wanted that anesthesia, and then it kind of got pushed. You know what? If you're yeah. up for a little tiny tangent, I would love more information about that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so. there's so many misconceptions about what it was, what it was for, how it's used, and you just said yourself, women wanted it at that time. Yeah, apparently, and a, and a lot of this I learned from reading uh, Rebecca Decker's book, She's with Evidence-Based Birth. Mm-hmm. She talks about this in her book, uh, Babies Are Not Pizza. And uh, it- They're born, not delivered. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, it talks about how women actually wanted anesthesia in childbirth because it's, for most women, they interpret contractions and labor as pain. So they wanted to have access to adequate anesthesia. So they there was like an article written and like a push for it and women kind of de- demanded it. And then it got to be more frequent. But then when you actually look at how it happened, it's kind of horrifying in a way to watch mm-hmm. and see what it does to women during birth. But actually some of the origins of it, women wanted it. But some of that like lack of control sort of persisted. And then there were things like forceps deliveries and without consent and routine episiotomy without consent. And don't get me wrong, we have gotten better, but Mm -hmm. we still have a ways to go. So things show up today in terms of how we need to work on the way we provide um, labor and birth. Things like consent for vaginal exams, breaking water, stripping membranes, those kinds of things, and discussions about Pitocin, instilling fear in birth when it really doesn't need to be there. You know, your baby's going to die if you don't start Pitocin, kind of foolishness like that. So, so that's kind of where we are. And then the, the reason education is so important is that you need to have information. You obviously can't do you can't be at the same level I'm at in terms of I've done this for 15 years and I've been a long been a long time you know I've went through four years of medical school four years of OBGYN training but what I've done is I've distilled down information to the things that I believe are most important and present just the evidence and the data I present research and facts and you can come to your own decisions about what you think is best for yourself, but you need to have some basic information so you are uh, ready to have an intelligent discussion about things. You know, and for so long, what kind of goes along with that is that medicine and physicians have been gatekeepers of information. We we had all the books and the knowledge that has changed. Yeah, with with Google, there's lots of tons say, of information. I a think. lot of providers yeah. don't like Doctor Google. How do you feel about Doctor Google? Doctor Google is good for some things, bad for other things, and it's 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 a starting point. It's not an ending point. So it shouldn't be that you go to Google and you get to look for an answer to a question. It should be, Hey, I found this on Google or on this website. Can we talk about it? So I can help and so I can take this information and apply it to my own unique situation. So that's what I help women do is understand things, basic understanding of things of how late pregnancy, labor, birth, so that they can, have some baseline information to be an informed participant in their care. And that uh, being informed is part of the educational process. If you 100%, don't know yeah. what you're, what you want even. 
it, you don't know what you want. You don't know what you don't know <laughs> or, or questions that you should be asking um, that if, when you don't know those things and sometimes things happen and you, you know, you don't, you don't understand why, or you don't realize until later, like, wait a minute, I actually had a choice in that. Yeah. Like, yes, you do. So you're, I can already tell you're a very kind and respectful um, provider. I'm sure you're not doing the um, things against a woman's consent, you know, but tell, tell me the difference between, I mean, you could probably peg an educated, um, an educated birthing person over an educated birthing person pretty fast, right? As soon as you Oh yeah, for the most part. Yeah, some people are like, I have no idea. I have no clue, you know, about things. Well, in in the circumstance. But what, how does, um, how do you notice, how does that change their birth outcomes? How does it make you, do you practice differently with the ones that are uneducated versus the ones that come prepared? No, I mean, I still, I give people all, it's just that if they come prepared, sometimes the discussion is, not sometimes, the discussion is just easier to have. And I think we can get through things a little bit faster. If people don't have any baseline information at all, then it may take me longer to explain things. Which is super fun when you're having contractions. <laughs> or the key is that I'm willing to spend the time to do it, whereas not all providers are. So ideally, if you come armed with some basic information, then you can kind of get to those discussions and come to things a little bit uh, faster. And then the other thing I teach women is how, not just what information you need to know, but how to have these discussions, because there's a way, there's a little bit of, I think, culture in the birth world, I guess, for lack of a better way, that it's this like, you got to fight and you got to go in and you got to be ready to demand stuff. And it has to be like this contentious sort of relationship. And that's actually the absolute worst energy that you want around your pregnancy or birth is one of fighting of one of feeling like you're on your guard. Well, here's the thing. We had to do that in the eighties and the nineties and a little bit in the two thousands. So, but now it's like, that's, that's so 1980s. Thank you for the midwives that went to jail for us in the 1980s. But now like there isn't so much of a fight. Yeah. And sometimes there is, and sometimes you do have to get to the fight, but you don't need to start at the fight. Yeah. I think the, yeah. So these days you need to, yeah. you can, you can start from a place of trying to connect with people on a human level. And, you know, this is what I'm trying to know. This is what I'm trying to understand. These are the things that are important to me. And then you connect on that human level. If people aren't responding to you on that level. Ideally during pregnancy, you find another provider. You can do that up until the last day, but, um, but then if say that again, you can, yes, you can, you can, you can get a new provider up until the last day. I've seen, I've had stories, women come on my podcast where they have fired the doctor mid delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yes. So wow, it it is possible that you can find a new person. And even if you're in the hospital and you can demand that a nurse leave, you can demand that an OB leave, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You but can. like you said, don't come in with your fists up ready for a fight. But right, if you find right. yeah, if you, you find need you, to draw that boundary. Exactly. So you start from a place of kindness connecting on a human level. Then if people aren't listening to you, you have to escalate it. Can, can I just ask you a, a, a weird question? Um, how does that affect how you're paid as a doctor if you get fired before the delivery or during the delivery? Or oh, like, I, how does it work with the insurance. Um, I'm just curious if that, I don't think it'll affect, I mean, if if that's a complicated system, the way OB gets reimbursed, it's a global fee where you, the insurance company reimburses for one fee for the entire pregnancy. So that's kind of 
may get broken up depending on how the practice structure works. Some, some of the doctors, whoever saw you during prenatal care may get uh, part of it. Whoever did the delivery may get part of it. So that's kind of complicated, but in general, someone will probably still get paid even if they're fired. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't really, it shouldn't play, uh, you shouldn't worry about that. Cause I, I, no. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I've had women because a lot of times we're people pleasers. We want to make sure everybody's set, even though we're the ones going through birth, we want to make sure the doctor's taken care of. And the nurse yeah. And, and I think that that's a natural thing. And especially mm-hmm. like you said, for, for women, but don't, don't worry about that. And actually don't think, I think this is a sort of a harsh reality, but at the end of the day, the doctor probably won't think twice necessarily that you didn't come back or um, they, f- people see so many patients and things kind of go through um, it, it, unless it's like a really contentious sort of thing, then it, it just doesn't. They're not going to take it personally, no. even though you're a hormonal ball of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, baby. They don't. Okay. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So um, do you think that a prenatal education is accessible to everyone or do you think that there are some discrepancies in how women are able to access that information and how it affects their births? Um, sure. So there is, uh, there's definitely lots of free information out there. I think podcasts are starting to be a tremendous free source of information. I mean, I, I provide um, a ton of free content on my podcast, mm-hmm. but at the same time, people who are in the birth space, whether it's doulas or childbirth educators, they deserve to be compensated for their work. So uh, rightfully so, they need to, you know, they need to make money for their work, however, however that happens. So you'll find varying levels of how things cost and, you know, how expensive they are. So there are, yes, some financial barriers to, to getting education, but I think you can get a ton of information for free. A lot of the benefit of childbirth education is maybe more in um, contact with a, a person where you have more access to, to get questions answered or you can, um, or the, the information is nice and organized and packaged. Yeah, and so you don't have to you spend so get what much you pay time. For. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to spend so much time looking yeah. at things. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned when we were talking about twilight sleep, uh, um, about pain, pain management, that women mm-hmm. back then wanted the pain management. And now we don't want twilight sleep. That may have just been, you know, the old way of doing things before the better epidurals came in. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, what do you think? Are we just more enlightened that we can like endure the pain better or we can manage the pain better? What, what do you, what are your thoughts on, uh, women that go in with the thought like pain is scary, avoid it at all costs. I, that that is perfectly reasonable. So I don't have any thoughts that women should manage pain any particular way. That's not the way I approach it. It should be what what is it that this individual woman wants, and how can we support her in that? So I don't think women should have like an irrational sense of pain, like it's going to kill them, I'm going to die, or anything. Well, I mean, right? <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. And there's a fear. But then there's also the people that say, well, if you're just not afraid of it, it won't hurt. Right. Uh, right. right. Yeah. That's and it's not, not true either all yeah, the time. Exactly. So it's it, labor pain is different, it's limited. We know that it's going to end. We know that on the other side of it is this beautiful thing. You're going to have a baby. So it's a time limited sort of thing. It's probably different than any other pain that we experience totally. in our life or any other situation. But there are some people who 
who I, I do like to encourage women, like you don't necessarily, you can be a sca- scared of it, but you don't have to like let that fear overcome you and you can educate yourself about it. But if you want to come in, I've, I have had women ask for an epidural. <laughs> One of my most funny stories is like, she called and she's like, I'm on the way. And can you get my epidural ready for when I get there? And it's like, well, that's not exactly how it how works. It works. <laughs> <laughs> but so some, some women don't want to experience any pain. Some women, like, for example, in the setting of labor induction, even before labor induction starts, they want to get an epidural. That is a great point because even if you plan on epidural, you don't get an epidural at one centimeter. So there's still some. Or you can, actually you can, if you want, if you want. Yes. (laughs) Like we, we, we have, we can't hold these things from women. There's no like rationale behind it. Like No, that. no. In general, we can't, but there are going to be hospital, hospital policies or there's going to be doctors that refuse to. I think for sure in the past, yes. And there may be, especially doctors maybe who have been in practice longer and have those sort of what are considered pretty, you know, fairly antiquated ideas. Mm. But even these days, when you're at hospital, we, we don't, we, we've learned or we're getting educated even from our specialty societies that we don't withhold things from, from women like that. We don't get to make that choice for them. I love that. That's your quote. That's your meme of the day. We don't hold things. (laughs) We don't withhold pain management from women. So you're saying basically that that's an antiquated approach to say Mm -hmm. you have to get to four centimeters. You have to get, you have to have an established labor pattern before we'll give you an epidural because it'll slow down because that's not true. Correct. I mean, it, it, it will slow down labor, but the studies show I'm a date. I did a research fellowship, so I'm always about data and research. It's slow, an epidural will slow down labor by at the most 30 minutes. Oh, well then. <laughs> so you can go in there with your fresh manicure and your makeup and get your induction and your epidural and just make it a party. If that's what you want to do. Or if you want to not get an epidural, then that's what you want to do. Yeah, sure. no, I, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I just... I mean, I love, I love your take. It's the same as mine. It's just anything you want is great. Whatever you want is great. It's all. Yeah, so we um, have to try to meet women where they are yeah. and put, put, put each person, you know, put them at the center of their birth experience and then go from there. Put them at the center of their birth experience. Mm-hmm. What a concept. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So um, what about um, the, what's the best way to make a birth plan? So you've got this, all this prenatal education and then what yes. impact so does the birth plan have? I have a whole free one hour class on how to make a birth plan. Uh, and so folks can go check that out on my, my website, uh, it, which is ncrcoaching.com, although it's getting ready to change to drnicolerankins.com. But the basic things are that it is more than a template, a checklist, like that. Does that is not a birth plan. That's a template or a checklist. Yeah. So it's not a template. It's not a checklist. It's, it's actually a way for you to put the things that you want for your birth into a document. And you need to discuss it during your prenatal visit, the first time that anyone sees your birth plan, and actually I say birth wishes because no one can plan birth. Your doctor can't plan birth. birth. Wishes. You can't. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. You can't plan birth. Your doctor can't plan birth, even though they try to say, "Well, we can induce you." The only person who has control of the birth is the baby, and we don't know what buttons and levers they hit in there to make we- things happen. <laughs> so, all right, geek out with me on a little bit on that. What are the levers? In the- we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what starts. If well, whoever. Is it- is it true that the baby starts labor with a hormone coming from its lungs? 
we don't know that. No, that we don't know. We don't okay. know what's. We don't if know. We, if we knew what started labor, somebody would put that in a bottle and sell it, right. or sell it in general, because everybody well, wants to know when, when, when is the my labor going to start? Or is it just because it's women's health that we haven't studied it in depth? You know, I think actually it's been it's been studied is fairly. Been? Yeah, I think so to try to figure out like what starts labor, but whoever figures that out will probably win a yeah. Nobel Prize in medicine or something. But that would be amazing. Yeah, All so the women out there that are 42 plus weeks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So as far as the birth plan, it's really our birth wishes. It's a way to, you need to go through and think about the things that you want and then talk about it during your prenatal visit to make sure your provider is on the same page. Make sure the things that you want are in line with your own individual risk. For example, if you have hypertension in pregnancy or there are issues with your baby's growth, then probably intermittent monitoring where we're not, you know, is not the right right option for you because your baby may be at more risk for things happening during the course of labor and birth. So the birth plan is about asking questions to understand how your provider practices and then formalizing those things in a piece of paper. So that actually that that last one pe- one page thing is the the last step. It's really should be an ongoing kind of touch bases a couple times, ask these questions, get these things in order to make it. Um, so, you know, honestly, the, the goal would be that you don't need a birth plan eventually, right? Yeah. Because you, you've already discussed everything. You feel comfortable. You don't have to write it down, but it does help to kind of solidify things. And then also the process of making a birth plan is doing it in a way so that the people who... Uh, are going to receive it because some people you may not know will actually pay attention to it. So yeah, that's true. So what what happens though if you've gone over your birth plan with your your prenatal care provider, but then they mm-hmm. meet you first time in the hospital? Is there there is that- that's why you know you do still need to like have it there. So but it, one of the questions that I tell people to ask is, well, who could be there at my birth, and how do they practice in comparison to you? And is there anybody who... Because you know, you work in a team and the ones that do prenatals, you know them, right? You know them. Yeah. So is there anyone who I should avoid? Can I, you know, think about ways that, you know, who's going to be supportive? Is it possible for me to just get scheduled with you or work with you? Or can you come in for my delivery? Then you can have those kind of questions and then you can be prepared just just in case. And then in the instance where you know, everybody seems, you know, it's good from the group. I've definitely worked with plenty of groups where all the doctors are fine. They're all, you know, there's no issues. You still have the page written so you can give it to your nurse, give it to your, your physician, and you have it done in a way so that people actually pay attention to it. So what are the, like the most important components on that birth plan? It certainly can't be like what's in your water bottle or what color socks you wear. I mean, yeah, what are the, no, exactly. some, of the, some of the stuff I've seen birth plans that are just like out of control. There's 40 points on it. Yeah. What are like the most key points that you would want to include? Sure. So if you have some specific preferences about around pain management, then definitely include Ooh. that. Yeah. So if you want to do an unmedicated birth, if you don't want to be asked, about pain medicine and put that on there. If you want access to uh, hydrotherapy, like shower or bath, then you want to have that there. But you should know if you have access to those options before you get to the hospital. I demand hydrotherapy. (laughs) Uh, There's no, there's no, there's no here. Yeah. So, so, um, so definitely ask, you know, those type of things. If you want delayed core clamping and skin to skin contact, 
you should say those specifically. We're getting better when we do that more routinely, yeah. but not everybody does still. Right. Yeah. So you should, you should specify that you don't so much need to put things that'll happen after the birth. For instance, like if you don't want your, uh, male to be circumcised, that doesn't necessarily need to go on your birth wishes. No, because they can, talk to you. Yeah, they'll talk to you about that. So that isn't necessarily anything that's there. So I would say pain management for sure. If you have a specific, and some of this you can communicate, but it may remind you to communicate that you want like dim lights in the room or, you know, you want um, music played, those kinds of how you want the environment of the room. That's like a one sentence thing. It doesn't yeah. have to be anything particularly complicated. And then really, I usually say like, put something up there that says the most important thing is for my baby and I to be healthy. Because for whatever reason, especially in traditional medicine, we we have this warped view that if a woman has a birth plan, that somehow she's willing to sacrifice her life or her child's life to achieve some idealized version. You're not of wrong. I, and, yep. <laughs> and, but that's not like, there's no, no woman who wants. Again, it's not the 1980s. We're yeah. Not, you know, right. Martyrs. So no one wants to, their, everyone wants their baby to be healthy. But I think sometimes when providers hear women say that, it like reminds them like, okay, yes, like this is the thing that she Yeah, it's not a demand, it's a preference. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so with that then, that would be one of the ways you could get your doctor to actually pay attention to your plan is by yes. using words like that. Exactly. Yes. And starting yes. it off like What are that? ways yes. to make it so your doctor won't listen to your plan or like will totally disregard it? If it's more than one page. Oh, okay. <laughs> if it has colored doodles, if yeah, you yeah. put it on a poster board, you can, yes. no, seriously, what are some other ways? Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's very long, then no one's going to read it. If it's except like it's a ton of detail and things that like, you know, you don't have to put like, I want Stevie wonder played for the, you know, like you don't have yeah. to put all the, some of those things that you can kind of do yourself. So maybe and, take the cliff notes version of your birth prep and make it a birth plan and don't, don't yes. indulge the entire team. Yeah, it doesn't, all of your thought it processes. doesn't have to be everything. Got I actually it. like, if you Google visual birth plans, I think those are kind of nice with the symbols on them that you can use uh, in order to communicate the things fairly quickly and easily that are most important to you. And then so. you, you tape it to your chest. Is that the best way? I, <laughs> you know, honestly, this is the part you just have to say, here are my birth wishes. Can we yeah. talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just, yeah. just joking about it because there's so much fear surrounding birth plans will even be listened to. Oh yeah, it will be listened to, but then it's not. And then the women are traumatized because right. it's not listened to. So I'm just like trying to get to the best way, mm -hmm. the best way to approach it because it's like the best way. Sometimes it's hard to like pinpoint the nuance of why something works and won't when it doesn't. Like. Sure. Sure. Um, another good way to have your birth wishes paid attention to is to have someone with you who can help advocate for I you like a doula. So, okay. That brings um, me to my next question. How do you um, plan? How do you recommend uh, women plan to adapt their birth pl plan in the light of what COVID's done to hospital policy and everything? Sure. So I, we're fine. We're starting to come around around every place is different. I think the biggest thing is you can't have as many visitors. So if you were someone, if you were planning to have like your mom and Everyone. your sister <laughs> and you know, your, 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 a partner and a doula that that's not going to happen. It's going to be 
one, maybe two people. So plan to have like that one main support person with you and you may be able to have a second one. So like right now at the hospital where I practice, there can be one main support person plus a doula if they, Yay, if they want that. Yeah. So, so plan to have like that one person plus a support person. If you only have that one person, then you may need to and you want additional support, then you need to investigate virtual options. Mm -hmm. So you need to have like, if you have want to have a nice big, like an iPad or something, you need to have long cords so you can plug it in, put things on a stand so you're not like holding it, that kind of thing. So you have to investigate virtual mm -hmm. options, which I've heard a lot of people say have been working. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're I, not I know perfect, a lot of doulas. But, yeah, mm -hmm. I know a lot of doulas that hate and like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, some doulas can even support multiple people at the same time because it's virtual. They're just, you know, oh, that's a, tuning okay. in. Right, yeah. right, right. So I know, but I just, I just know like, um, we've always, we've kind of taught people that partners are key and a doula is an accent to that. And then you take away that and it's like, what does the partner do? Right. What, what, right. <laughs> are they, are they lost? So you also mentioned uh, earlier, um, the effect of racism in the birth world. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to, to know what your exact thoughts were on that. Um, <laughs> I mean, our whole medical system is, is our whole society is affected by racism, but we know that some of the adverse pregnancy outcomes and neonatal outcomes and infant outcomes are, uh, resulting from racism and women experiencing, in particular, I mean, black women experiencing chronic stress and what's considered or something called weathering constantly under these little micro attacks of things. And uh, it's a complex interaction of how our society, so you're the things that you're experiencing in the background yeah. in society, how that affects how you are in pregnancy. One of, I think this is sort of anecdotal, but one of the most like interesting things to me like my friends and I have a group of friends and we're all physicians all black women all highly educated and like two had preeclampsia that was pretty bad um mm. three of us had preterm babies um you know one I think the three or four of us had c-section so just those things you realize like how we are affected by things you never know. So one of the biggest things that we've talked or we, we hear a lot about, of course, is maternal mortality, where uh, black women are three to four more times likely to die related to pregnancy issues than uh, white women. And of course, racism plays a, a role in that. And a, a lot of what people don't realize is 60% of maternal mortality actually happens after birth. So it's really important that you know some of the things that are warning signs to look out for. When you read some of the, the stories that you see, a lot of times it's women who were getting in trouble in those first few weeks after birth, and either they uh, were dismissed or their mm -hmm. concerns were ignored, uh, and so, they weren't. Mm -hmm. So talk about what is 60% of deaths actually occur after birth, how long mm -hmm. after birth, what's kind of the cutoff most before of you're them, like out of the woods? Yeah, most of them are within the first six of those 60%, most are within the first six to eight weeks. And then actually it can be up until a year. It's up until a year, but you would think mm -hmm. eight weeks you're out of the woods, but you're not. Right. Not yeah, still, yeah, exactly. So yeah. what are some of those danger warning signs? Yeah. So some things you want to look out for, obviously heavy, heavy bleeding. That's not, that should start to taper off as you, you go along. So heavy bleeding, if you're um, you know, having lots of swelling in your legs and it's not going away, not getting better. If you're feeling very, very tired and you're not, um, you know, you can barely like get up, move around. You're feeling short of breath. That's also a concern. But what's a short of breath? 
What's that? Yeah. So where you're just like, you can't quite catch your breath and like, is it even, like a symptom of something? Oh yes. Yeah, sorry. So yes. Yeah, so a lot of the issues that happen are cardiac or heart issues. Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, people so, are dying of, of, of heart attacks after mm-hmm. they give birth or, or, or heart attack is not because heart attack it's, it's, it's different. It's not like some heart attacks are from blocking blood flow to the heart. Often it's just that the heart is weaker and it gets weak, weak, weak. Until... Isn't it stronger because it had so much more blood to pump during mm-hmm. pregnancy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then is mm-hmm. it like a deflated, deflated balloon and you have water? I mean, talk yeah. to the lay people right. here. <laughs> <laughs> so your or, heart's just having a hard time adapting to normal life. Exactly. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yes. It's not common, but it does. And actually I should say, although it's three to four times as likely, it's not, it's not a common occurrence that women die after birth, but it's higher than it needs to be. Well, because, but, mm-hmm. but all the time when it happens, it's, it's always like, Oh, we, we didn't see this coming. And, mm-hmm. or they say, Oh, she didn't feel good. But when we took her in and they sent her home, right. that kind of thing like that. Exactly. You're, yeah. you're already to, ex- you're expected to feel kind of crummy in mm-hmm. those newborn in mm-hmm. that first, that fourth trimester. Right? right. So right. how do you draw the line between feeling crummy and like a very serious health complication? Right. Right. Or, or the other thing that people experiences trouble with blood pressure postpartum and getting blood pressure under control and then potentially having a stroke from issues related to blood pressure. So the the fine line is that we should be able to, we as medical providers should listen to women, really hear what they're saying, and then make that assessment about whether or not things need to be escalated. But the problem is we're not always listening. That's part of this, like the CDC has a new campaign called, um, hear me here. It's here. I'm I'm blanking on what the exact name of it is, but it basically says that it it's, it's language and things that women can use in order to get their provider to hear what they're saying. Oh, wow. And how many things, how many complications can you kind of self-diagnose? I mean, you know, when you feel crummy, but when you're past the point of feeling crummy and you're just in survival mode, sometimes you Mm -hmm. can't self-diagnose. Exactly. Right. So like, what are some of the, um, those signs that your partners, your, your families can be watching out for? Oh, I think it's just, if you're just feeling really, really bad, that's actually a sign that always gets me like red flag. Like, I don't know exactly how to put my, my finger okay, okay. on it. Dr. Rankin, I'm mm-hmm. coming in for my post, post birth appointment. And mm-hmm. I just say, I feel really crummy. Like, yes. what are you, what follow-up questions are you going to ask to like find sh- out? Cause how are you supposed to know how you're, you're going to feel like post-birth feels crummy? I just, I've done it four times. It feels crummy, but crummy and really crummy. Right. <laughs> right. It, it, it does. But I think there's also like a progression of things. I think for the most part, most women feel a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. You're not okay. like getting worse. So you want to see how you're feeling over time compared to your birth. And then you ask, well, what do you mean by crummy? Are you um, tired? Are you not getting sleep? Are you having trouble moving around? Could this all of be the above depression? So going to tell me to um, take a nap. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really difficult yeah. to say. Like, you know, I don't think this is like necessarily the best form to play through that sort of scenario because every person is different. So if it's like 
you know, if you had high blood pressure during pregnancy or if you had any issues or difficulties with your birth, then I would be looking through that. We can't sit here and go through some sort of like standard no, scenario no, that'll just, help people. Mm-hmm. We keep just hearing these stories. Oh, we didn't see it coming or hey, the doctor ignored her. And, and then all that does is perpetuate fear that I, you're just going to drop dead one day. Yeah, sure. So I think the key is if you're still not feeling well is if, or if you're feeling like you're not getting answers resolved to your satisfaction or you're not feeling better, then you need to be persistent and have someone who can advocate for you ideally as well. But persistence is, is, is probably key and changing to someone else if the, what you're getting isn't satisfying what you need. That can be difficult. I'm not saying that that's necessarily an easy task, but if you feel like you're not getting better and you're, you're not getting responses to what you need, then you have to be persistent until so you the same get the responses you before need. Before your birth, you can switch providers. You can switch providers after your birth. Sure. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so why do you think that um, then uh, black women are three to four times more likely to die after child with childbirth related issues, even when socioeconomic status is included? Like, it's racism. So, so are they just being ignored? Like, um, well, the, you know, that it's, it's that black women are treated in multiple ways in different, um, ways. Either they're ignored, their concerns are minimalized. So not even if they are addressed, even they, if they, even if they are acknowledged, they're not accepted to be at the same level. Things aren't acted on necessarily as quickly if they are being acted on. There are, of course, some underlying potentially health um, issue, you know, whether we're more at risk for things like uh, carrying extra weight or hypertension, mm-hmm. but a lot of that factors into societal stresses as, as well. But yeah, the, sure. the bottom, the, the, and it's not, it's, it's not, um, it's not because of race. It's because of the way race influences the experience that someone has and what that Got lifetime it. of experiences does to them. So I used to be a certified interpreter and I attended several births with deaf women and I drove me crazy because I would see the cultural just you would think deafness they speak english natively black people they speak english natively you would think that we're all one big happy family but there's new there were nuances in the difference in the deaf culture and the hearing culture that as an interpreter in the hospital room was really hard to bridge mm-hmm. and and i would see women um have less than ideal care as a deaf woman just because she was deaf and i wouldn't have said it was like an ada thing or discriminatory thing but i feel like it was like a cultural mismatch like she couldn't get her self heard because the doctor couldn't understand her cultural framework do you think right. that's part of part of it um that's that's part of it but i mean i think it's just that we're conditioned in society in many ways to treat people a different way i think one of the ways mm. that i learned a lot about this is from when i had a birth photographer on the podcast and she shared how she would have women who had very similar experiences or health things or concerns and she would be at those different births and one was a black woman and one was a white woman and it 
could be totally different experiences in the way that they were treated and the preconceived notions that the providers brought in about how they thought those people you know, the preconceived notions that they brought in, how that influenced people's care. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm a birth filmmaker by, that's my, my, so my profession. So um, that would be an interesting documentary to explore. <laughs> I'm sure people would <laughs> want their footage put into a documentary without their permission, but right. that is really, really interesting. So they can see the juxtaposition of these two circumstances. Wow. Okay. So is there anything else that um, you would say about like, the right or the wrong way for you as an individual to birth, like how to navigate those, those choices just for yourself. Other than there is, there is no right or, or wrong way. It's really about whatever getting in tune for the things that you want and are important to you and being comfortable expressing that and advocating for that. Like I see both sides where I have stories where women say, everybody in my family says I should just get an epidural. And I don't understand why they keep, you know, they don't understand why I want to do an unmedicated birth. Or I hear the other side where everybody says I better not get an epidural. Like I better do an unmedicated birth. Mm -hmm. And there's like the, you know, neither, a, a lot of the things focus around pain management, at least in the hospital. So just whatever you feel like you, um, you get in tune with the things that you want. Don't make decisions based on fear, make decisions based on information. So inform yourself, get information, then make decisions. Don't make decisions based on, on fear is will probably be the biggest thing I would say. That's amazing. I love that. Don't make decisions based on fear. I love it. And there's a lot of things that are scary about birth because it's very much so an unknown. So, and we don't have the same sort of things in our culture and society where you're exposed to seeing what birth is actually like. So you don't know what you see is on TV and, you know, in movies, which is highly yeah. like, not normal. No. <laughs> so, so we don't have a lot of information and it's not something that we talk about. So I get it. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with feeling fear. That's a really normal Mm -hmm. response. It's just a matter of how you deal with that. Yeah. Fear is normal, but you just, yeah, I love it. Wow. Okay. So uh, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but we always do at the end too. How Mm -hmm. do people find you follow all the stuffs? Oh, sure. So I am on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins and my website is drnicolerankins.com. So that's my new website. That should be out by the time within the next month or so. Yeah. So so, yeah. yeah, and so NRC coaching is what it is now. Oh, or in, yeah. right now in NCR coaching. That's my initials, Nicole Calloway Rankin. So mm-hmm. ncrcoaching.com is what it is now. It'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be changed. Awesome. Probably by the time this releases, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, sure. Really, really appreciate it. Very interesting. No problem. <laughs> Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.